Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I am the host. Today's episode is called A Peek Behind the Curtain at Church Headquarters, Part 2. Welcome back to the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. Today we have the third part in a series we're doing with Brian Harris, and it has been fascinating so far. So, so yet again today, we're bringing back Brian onto the show. If you haven't listened to the last two weeks' podcasts, please go back and give him a listen. The first one, we discussed his time working in the church headquarters at a very broad scale. The second episode, we talked about a number of the projects that he had a direct hand in and a unique insight into some of the inner workings of church headquarters. And we're going to continue that conversation today. So last last week, we covered what Brian referred to as membership segmentation and how these surveys were used to distinguish different types of members of the church. And we finished our discussion last week talking a a little bit about sexuality and missionaries with their devices and their uh, pornography use while serving missions. And we, I want to jump right back into that subject. So we'll continue a little bit from what we were discussing last week, and then we'll move on from there. Without further ado, welcome back to the show, Brian. Thank you so much for coming back on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think the last thing we we were discussing was mission presidents asking you and the others in your department for the specific statistics on their missionaries or even specific names of the missionaries who were self-reporting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something we could never go into in any kind of detail. Was that direction given to you by the headquarters, like by your boss, or was that just like, you don't share those sort of things like ethically. Where was the direction that to, on what to share and what not to share? That really comes from just our own ethics training as researchers. So in any kind of research training course, every sociology program or anthropology or whatever, uh, and even going into counseling, there, there are certain codes of ethics that you just have to be aware of power differentials and groups that might be marginalized and just the confidentiality of things. And especially in this survey, we had explicitly promised total anonymity. And so we weren't even recording like IP address or anything that could even potentially be traced back to a certain area or a certain apartment or anything like that. So you didn't even have access to the information that they wanted. Right. So, so we, we did not have any names of the missionaries. So what would happen is we would send a personalized link uh, to each missionary. Uh, they would fill it out. They would have some kind of like access code that they would be given by their uh, district leader or zone leader or the assistants, um, so so that we could identify like missionary number twenty three said this, but we don't know which missionary is which. So the assistants had that number that they would assign to a person, but we never had the 
which number was assigned to which person. Um, so that way they could kind of keep track of who has responded and who hasn't. And we could say, we haven't heard from missionary number 70 or 85 yet. Can you reach out to them and <laughs> encourage them to do this? And they would have the name, but we never did. These assistants, I, I'm assuming you're just talking about the assistance to the mission president. Yeah, assistance to the president. So they would have a list of the, their missionaries assigned to a number, but they did not have access to the information. Right. Yeah, so so we never had any kind of personally identifying information in the first place. Um, where it got a little bit complicated was we did know, mission by mission, which ones had really high rates of pornography use. And so there were certain missions where we could say, look, you've got like almost 40% of your elders self-reporting that they look at pornography. And as we talked about last time, with self-report data, we know that not everybody's going to be telling the absolute truth. There might be people that aren't admitting to something that they have actually done. And so whatever that estimate is that we got for each mission, we don't expect the real percentage to be any lower than that. It might be higher, but that's sort of the ballpark of what we're looking at. It's not going to be lower than that, um, and it could very well be higher. And so that's the kind of thing that the missionary department and different mission presidents wanted to know. Is my mission one of those? Interesting. But even at that level, um, we felt just in our professional experience and training that it would be a violation of those missionaries' trust to have promised anonymity, but then to turn around and tell the mission president, hey, you should just lay it on thick with all of your missionaries just in case. So... Uh, we, we always just simply said no. The closest we ever got was by clustering missions. And, and we did this in the United States, kind of basically cut it in fourths and said the southeast region, you know, basically from Oklahoma over and down, you know, has an average around here. And the northeast region has an average around here. And so that makes it very difficult to know, is my mission one of those or not? Um, but it kind of gave at least the missionary department leadership a little bit of direction on how are things doing generally. We were discussing last week, you were monitoring this information to, to gauge the impact that the devices would have on, on the usage of pornography among the missionaries. Was there anything else that you guys were trying to figure out with these surveys? Initially, in the earliest stages before the mobile devices had rolled out to every mission, they were very interested in finding out what are the loopholes that missionaries are finding and is there any way that we can close those gaps to make access to pornography a little bit more difficult or to, is there anything we can do to remove anything from the device that might be causing a temptation to go elsewhere on the device. Um, so a couple of interesting things that we saw there was we would ask kind of an open-ended question like, how did you access this? Uh, you reported that you did access something inappropriate or that you felt was inappropriate. Uh, what, what was that like? And so we had people uh, kind of on the one hand saying, well, it technically wasn't even pornography. I was just imagining things and I felt bad. Um, and so I, I reported that I had accessed something inappropriate and it was inside their own mind. And so that you can see that there's like a lot of guilt and shame and there's a, there's a culture that predicts that that would happen. Um, and then on the other hand, you'd have people saying, okay, I knew that I couldn't get onto the internet with the browser. And so I went to Google maps, which we use all the time for navigating around town. 
Uh, and from there, you can look up local businesses or nightclubs, and then there's user-generated content. And you can see people who have uploaded photos of their time spent oh. at this place. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, kind of getting those very detailed descriptions of, you know, you, you cannot lock down everything on the device. And, and being able to report that back to the missionary department and saying, look, people are going to find a way you can't take away their maps. You can't, you know, even if the only thing they have is a digital area book, somebody's going to find a way. <laughs> um, and so it really has to be kind of a, a personal mindset that they have to choose not to. And so really that's kind of where the focus had to be. It was not on technological barriers to access, but kind of intrinsic motivation to not did you ever get a gauge on how how much of the self-reporting was actually um, like accidental, like like seeing an ad or something versus them going and pursuing anything? And that's a little bit complicated because most of the time when somebody did say, you know, it was just this total accidental chance encounter. Somebody left a flyer on the ground. I'm in the Las Vegas mission and there's nothing you can do about it kind of thing. A lot of times that ends up turning into, and then I went out later and searched for something. Um, So they're a little bit intertwined, but there are definitely uh, missionaries out there who feel guilty enough about even accidental exposure. Or I knocked into someone and she answered the door wearing something that was not totally modest by LDS standards. And, you know, I had a thought. A lot of foreign missions, too the street corners, whenever there would be like a magazine stand without fail, there would always be something in there, pornographic in nature. Yeah. And if you've lived your whole life in Manti, Utah, you've probably never come across that just at the grocery (laughs) store or the bus stop or whatever. It's a very different world. Let's stick with the the subject of sexuality, because that's kind of where we've been hovering here for a sec. Um, You also mentioned that you had done some surveys um, and worked with some projects in regards to uh, sexual orientation, suicidality, the whole Mormon and gay um, theme. Yeah. So, um, and, and we had talked earlier when I was talking about those issues that are challenging for millennials and I did that kind of research road trip. Um, this, this issue of how the church handles LGBTQ plus issues uh, was definitely seen as very problematic for some people. Um, and to some extent you see that on both extremes, left and right within the church, you have people saying the church is capitulating far too much and their efforts to be inclusive are directly against what I was taught my whole life. And the church is kind of going astray too far to the mainstream. Um, but most of the younger people and, you know, even Gen X and boomers to some extent are more and more coming to the mindset of, you know, this, this church really is a little bit backwards. They're behind the times. Um, the way that they express inclusivity and these phrases like, we always love you no matter what, aren't backed by actions or they're not backed by enough of the right actions. Um, and so it's kind of mixed messages, almost like people see the church trying to hold on to that older, more conservative audience while at the same time trying to hold on to the people that are um, distancing themselves from the church and trying to have it both ways. I imagine, and and maybe you have a little glimpse onto this as well, when the shift on the, the priesthood ban 
happened and during that whole time frame i imagine that there was a percentage of membership of the church that felt the very same way that you're expressing about um the lgbtq plus community do you have any insight on that um nothing specific or based on actual data but there were definitely conversations that took place where it you know, people anecdotally recall things like, yeah, my, my super racist uncle quit going to church after that. <laughs> and, um, and I think, you know, there's potential that the church would lose some of its more homophobic or more transphobic members, uh, losing their membership or attendance or tithing dollars or whatever it is by moving too quickly on that issue that are, they're alienating part of their most, uh, rigid and evangelist, kind of base so these surveys that you were doing now this is going back to the one you did like in 2013 what were they trying to figure out to gauge um, the interest or the response of the millennials and younger generation to these topics or what were they after yeah i think they were trying to understand is our messaging ever going to convince these people that the church really does care about uh, our gay and queer or gender fluid members uh is what we're saying when we say we care about them. Is that enough um, to kind of satisfy those urges to lash out when the church isn't doing enough? And what was the consensus? Like, what did you gather from these surveys? So the consensus that I think came out a lot in these qualitative interviews was people fully expect the church to reverse course. It's a question of when. more than if, um, you know, maybe it's 25 years from now, but at, at some point it's just going to be strategically impossible for the church to hang on to this tradition and policy that we've had for so long. And so I think at that point you see millennials saying, maybe I can ride this wave. Maybe I can stay in the church long enough until they come around or I'm out. And, and kind of not seeing a way where their mind is going to change. You know, people who are wrestling with this issue don't ever think, well, maybe someday I will be convinced to go along with the church's policy on this. It's usually the church will eventually see what I've already had personal revelation about, which is a very, very complex kind of a thing to talk through. So you go, you gather, you compile this information and you get that most of those in our age group, the millennials and younger, they fully expect a course correction at some point in the future. You present that information to whoever it was that you were reporting this to. What What's the response? What did they say? And like, what was the feedback that you got? Or were you part of those discussions? Yeah. So these reports went back through the public affairs department and up through their lines of authority. But really there's there's only so much they can do without getting way out ahead of the brethren. And that's something that they never are willing to do. That's a, that's a major risk and liability for the church to say something on behalf of the church that then the, the top leadership comes back and says, no, actually we don't mean that. And that looks even worse in terms of the PR. When they have this logic and this reasoning that they're saying, we have countless examples of them doing that exact thing where they come out really strong on a subject a decade, two decades later, they of course corrected. So it's, it's just fascinating that they almost have no self-awareness of, at least from the way you're presenting it, like they're not self-aware enough to see what they're doing. 
yeah, it's it's really difficult uh, with church leadership to really get a sense for what is their five year plan. What are they hoping this church will look like in five years or 10 years or 20 years? Um, almost all the time it's focused on what did this leader say at the last general conference and how can we make sure that all of our messaging now uses that catchphrase or how can we make sure that all of our programs are now incorporating this new thing? And it, it's always kind of like, what is the next new thing right now? And just jumping from one issue to another, you know, this year it's light the world next year, it's hasten the work. The year after that, it's, you know, whatever. Yeah, the covenant path. And, you know, after some years, those are going to kind of fade away and they'll be replaced by the next new thing. None of those are substantive. Not very. <laughs> so those are those are all kind of reiterations of things that have already been taught or preached or uh, practiced in some way. And now we're just changing it a little and we're doing it a different way for this year. But there's there's not a really clear roadmap for what this church is going to be or what it's going to look like or how we're going to approach some of these really long-term strategy issues. You weren't aware of any sort of long-term plans for what the church would look like in 50 years or a hundred years. No. And, and almost everything that every department was working on was what do we need to do right now? What is this year's objective? Uh, and then wait for further guidance as, you know, apostles come and go and change positions and roles at headquarters you know this this executive committee chair wants us to aim for this but in three years when those role assignments change uh you know our guidance will change and we'll just switch what we're doing i guess a little bit on the the leadership and the the position changes since you're mentioning that how how did those changes take place and what was the impetus for moving people around the headquarters yeah so every year uh, around July, we know that all the mission president's assignments change. That's when the new presidents are called, the old presidents are released. And, and there's a very similar process at church headquarters for general authority positions. And these are members of the 70 being assigned temporarily to different. Yep, members of the 70 or even members of the 12. Um, and their assignments will change. And I can't remember exactly when, but every year, probably August-ish, there's like a new mission or a new general authority training. And so anyone who's been called since the last conference kind of comes on site and gets a full tour of the facilities and the campus and which teams are working on what. And, and so sometimes they're assigned as like a, I can't even remember what the terminology is, but it's like the assistant to the committee chair. They're like the vice president for this. So you're, you're on the board kind of, but you're not the head of it. Um, but sometimes, depending on like if a member of the 12 has passed away and a new one is called, then all of the assignments get shuffled. And so there's kind of a lot of upheaval and chaos in the early days. But then very quickly, you know, the hierarchy reigns. And whoever's in charge when he says to do something, everyone gets on board and does it. And that's the new direction. So who's, who's putting the, these people in their positions? Is it, is it the prophet directly saying, I want you to do this, you to do that? Where's that delegated down to, to, to the decision maker for these positions? Yeah, all of those decisions are made at the first presidency and Quorum of the Twelve level. So somewhere within that group of 15 leaders, they're making the decisions and shuffling the deck chairs and, and figuring out who's taking what. And sometimes there's continuity, like someone who was on the committee, but not the chair is now the chair um, and trying to keep some of that momentum, but not always. You, you said you were doing some of these surveys on 
the LGBTQ plus community. Did you do any surveys specifically talking about or dealing with uh, suicidality in this community? Um, not me personally. Uh, people in my division did. Um, and this was right at the end of my employment with the church in 2018, 2019. There had been a lot in the news uh, during that time about especially youth and LDS youth and why the suicide rate among LDS teens in Utah was so high compared to other places. And a, a lot of what was in the news was like, well, maybe it's the altitude because there's a correlation there. Maybe it's the you know, long winters and people aren't getting enough sunlight and stuff like that. And, you know, those probably all are contributing factors. Um, but it was not difficult for people to come to the conclusion that there's something about Utah culture or LDS culture specifically that might be exacerbating those issues. And it's a, it's a delicate subject. Uh, it can be triggering for people to even talk about it. And, and it was also very, very closely held by the church as this is top secret kind of PR stuff that cannot leak out in any way. So there were only a couple of people in the research division that were even involved in that project and looking at data, but not really talking about what data they were looking at. And so I think they had some kind of partnership with like the state of Utah and the death records and things like that to kind of cross-reference are these people members of the church what do we know about them and trying to kind of tie that in and i don't know all of the details of that study because you weren't personally working on that one right i wasn't personally involved it was our division director and like the associate director and that was it because they probably wanted to keep this under tight wraps i'm assuming yeah and and anything that got out that suggested the church is responsible even indirectly for suicide among teens is going to be a really big issue. Um, so I don't know the details of what went into it, but I do know that they concluded there is no link. There's no statistically significant link between LDS teens and risk of suicide. I mean, without seeing the, the numbers they were looking at, I guess we can't really give an opinion one way or the other, but does that sit well with you? Do you agree with that sort of a conclusion? Like what because you're you're in this world, you didn't look specifically at that at those numbers, but you understand what goes into that sort of research. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that come to mind. The population of Utah and the population of LDS people in Utah is pretty big. And overall the incidence of suicide is very small. And so to be able to find any pattern that predicts the outcome for, you know, whatever one percent of the population or less that actually does uh, die by suicide, it's going to take a pretty significant pattern to even be able to recognize that in the data. So I think there is a chance that there's just so much fuzz and noise in the data that it's hard to pull out a pattern just at a purely numerical level. Would you be able to look at the, the numbers and, and like we said, you don't have them, but would you be able to say someone is, you know, X percentage more likely to die by suicide than these other people in the, in different categories. Is that something that you'd be able to pull from that or? And I, I think that's what they were looking for. I think they were trying to kind of estimate the propensity or the, the risk likelihood of that outcome and then kind of cross checking it with, did that actually happen or not, <laughs> you know, based on what we would have predicted. So I think that is the pattern they were looking for. I think 
theoretically it would be possible to find that kind of pattern significant. Whether it's directly correlated or not, but it would give you some sort of statistic to say the likelihood. Yeah. And, and that's again, kind of at a population level, does it have an impact? Uh, what I think is important also that maybe wasn't discussed as part of that study was, does it have an impact at an individual level? or at a neighborhood level, you know, if you went to the family of the person who died by suicide and said, tell me about this life, you know, kind of do that oral history interview, what role does the church play? And if the church has any impact on even one suicide, that's a failure in my mind. Um, And so even if that pattern doesn't show up at the population level, I don't think you can discount the reality that the church does have some impact on youth and on their families and on the culture of their families. And there is some effect, even if you can't see it at the 300 million people view or the, you know, whatever. Did any of the rhetoric in headquarters or from the general authorities change as a result to these? I mean, you probably weren't in the room when these, these things were discussed, but did you, I mean, you're around them. Did you notice anything different about the way these subjects were handled before versus afterwards? I have not really noticed any significant shift in the messaging or the tone. Uh, It's been pretty consistent that the church is uh, against people acting on homosexual feelings. And the church is very much against suicide. And it's in the handbook of instructions that you know, suicide is a particular type of sin. And I think they've softened that language a little bit in recent years where they haven't said like, it's the same as murder against yourself. Um, I I think they've softened it to say like, we can't judge what position that person was in at the time. And they've tried to make it a little bit less harsh because there's so many circumstances that go into this, you know, the actual act of someone dying by suicide that And when a person dies by suicide, are they in their right mind? (laughs) And I would say probably almost never, you know, if, if you're at that point, there's, there's something going on that's kind of taking over your rational thinking. And, you know, I've, I've been in those moments where it's been a close call and I could have ended up dead, but I didn't. (laughs) And I can relate completely with you there. So I, I did an episode a couple weeks ago where I discussed it, not crazy in depth, but I did discuss some of the struggles I've had. And then I um, talked about one of the recent general conference talks that to me didn't hit quite right when they tried to address this subject. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, they're, they're trying to play this as cool as they can with the PR and, you know, try and not uh, add fuel to whatever fire might already be going on. Um, But I haven't seen any really significant changes in the way that they talk about homosexual behaviors or attractions within the church. Continuing on the same subject, the Mormon and Gay website has gone through a number of different iterations. Were some of these surveys that you were doing on on these topics related to the implementation and then retraction of Mormon and Gay? And, And I think that's maybe another example where somebody at church headquarters who was managing that product uh, and managing what kind of copy was written onto the website probably just got a little bit too far ahead of the brethren and said some things that maybe were more inclusive than what the church actually wanted to make public record. And that's a very 
kind of touchy website where there, there are not a lot of decisions that an individual staff member can just make. Um, all of that kind of has to be very carefully read and approved. And that's the kind of thing that goes through the correlation department and uh, specifically the evaluation division. And that tends to be a very conservative group. It tends to be a very uh, kind of rigid group in that segmentation study that we talked about. Um, their, their mindset is, you know, protect the church first and foremost, you know, anything else that's a consequence of that is the way it must be. And so protect the church, protect the doctrine. And if someone's feelings are hurt, it, it's just because they're not in line with the spirit. Uh, it's because they're not obeying and they're not feeling the way that they should be feeling about the doctrine of the church. So uh, I think any time that there's kind of a, a push toward inclusivity or saying like, please still participate in our programs, you can still be active and you can have leadership roles if you're worthy. I think you do have a group of people at church headquarters that sees that and says, well, no, actually they can't, <laughs> you know, uh, actually they're not as worthy as you say they might be or uh, things along those lines. It's so problematic to have a line of thought like that, especially when it's not a decision these people are making. And, uh, and that's a very small group of people that feels that way, but they tend to be in leadership positions and in those gatekeeping kind of positions. For the listeners that didn't listen to the previous episode, we discussed segmentation and we discussed the type of members that get put into these leadership positions. And that's specifically what we're discussing right here. Yeah. So even if the church's official doctrine and policy is that if you're homosexual and you're not acting on those feelings, you can be worthy as anybody else and fill any position in the church that's you know required. Um, you know, you could come into that and think that applies to me. You know, I could still be worthy. Maybe I want to be on the high council or something. And the stake president is just absolutely repulsed by homosexuality and would never consider you for that position. And that's, that's kind of where it breaks down between the, the church's official policies and what actually happens in the wards and stakes across the U S especially. But with some of these surveys on this, were the views held by those in the United States largely similar to those held by the rest of the world with regards to um, the LGBTQ plus community? Yes. Uh, so we did some work, not specifically with this project, uh, but for various projects, we, we would travel around the world. Typically in sub-Saharan Africa, homosexuality is seen as a very different kind of problem than it is here. Um, you know, we know that there are AIDS and HIV epidemics throughout different parts of Africa, but in places like Nigeria, it's a very conservative culture traditionally. Uh, almost everyone, at least in certain parts of Nigeria, are Christian, and they tend to be kind of more of that evangelical style of Christianity that was brought there by the uh, Pentecostal missionaries or the Salvation Army or those different groups. Um, there's, there's a colonial history there, and you know those are the families that would be disgusted, absolutely repulsed if their child came out to them as gay. And, and we see the same thing in a lot of Latin America. Um, they have a very traditional kind of conservative culture, especially among the members of the church there. You know, even just talking to bishops and stake presidents and youth leaders, uh, the way that they would talk about, like, what would you do if someone in your youth group came out as attracted to other boys? 
And that was just like, we would not even deal with it. Like that's not going to happen. We would straighten that kid out by whatever means necessary. And you kind of see that also in the Pacific islands with Tonga and Samoa. And when we went to New Zealand, a lot of those kind of island natives would talk about these things that way. So in a lot of ways, the U S is much more progressive, even among the membership of the church than other parts of the world. Before you said that, I would have totally guessed that it were the other way around, at least among the more Christian members of the church or uh, Christian members of the United States, not the population as a whole. Yeah. And I'm not sure how that looks in Europe or more secular kinds of nations, um, because most of our members do live in places like the Philippines and Latin America. They tend to be more third world, a little bit less economically stable on their own. We've seen a steady decline in membership in the more secular nations around the globe. Um, with, I mean, even recently, the Brit Ventures have been talking about stake and ward closures over there in the UK. Yeah, and I think that's going to become more common in the United States, just a hunch. But um... I mean, again, anecdotally, my local area as well, we just had restructuring of a bunch of the stakes and they talked about it as growth. But when you actually look at the redividing of the wards, like every single stake had one less ward than it did before. Yeah. And are the, are the new wards significantly bigger, maybe for now? <laughs> Not dramatically. Again, this is just my local area, but they we combined the ward that my wife attends and another neighboring ward, that ward was split in half. And the attendance that we have now is higher than it was before, but not dramatically. It, it's kind of hard to predict uh, what will happen with membership rates in the US. But it seems like the United States is becoming more and more secular. And even the way that uh, religious people in the United States behave mirrors a secular you know the religion is maybe now part of their political ideology more than it is their actual spiritual and theological tradition that's a whole different discussion but yes politicization of religion is something that's interesting and happening in the united states yeah and i think it's a way that people can continue to be religious at least uh on the outside while the whole society around them becomes more and more secular were there anything else that you, that you wanted to cover that you found interesting or noteworthy about your research into the LGBTQ plus community or even just sexuality as a whole with some of these surveys that you did? Um, I think the only other thing there would just be that there are some talented professionals that have specialized degrees and training in sexuality. Uh, they're marriage and family therapists that work for the church. Um, and even beyond like the LDS family services counselors, you know, there are, there are trained professionals that are trying to, uh, make some progress within church headquarters and seeing sexuality as more of a holistic uh, approach. Um, it's not just a moral failing, you know, it may not even be a moral failing at all. Maybe there's some other biopsychosocial something going on. And I think that they're trying really hard to make progress, but it's very difficult for the general authority level to really talk about that. And in general conference, can you talk about biopsychosocial factors around pornography? Or is this just, if you engage in this behavior, you will lose the spirit 
etc. And and it becomes strictly a spiritual thing or strictly a moral thing. And so it's really difficult to get that kind of healthy messaging out to the general church membership. And it kind of depends on who is the messenger, who is qualified to deliver that message. And um, if it comes through on some hidden church URL somewhere <laughs> within the subdomains of the church's website, is that seen as authoritative? And is it going to be talked about in an elders quorum lesson when there's a, an Enzyme article from the last conference that talks about it very differently? So you mentioned therapists and specifically those that are working for the church. Were there any studies that you had done into the impacts of members suffering from whatever it is? We've talked about suicidality. We've talked about a number of things about members that seek counselors or therapists outside of the religion and the impacts that that has on them. Was that something that you guys ever studied? A little bit. So I think the closest we ever got to that was interviewing bishops. And, and a lot of these were local interviews where I would personally drive up to like Roy, Utah uh, and meet with a bishop and say, okay, tell me about how you handle situations of sexuality, you know, whether it's masturbation or pornography or same-sex attraction, like whatever it is, what are your go-to methods or how do you deal with this? Um, and it's very clear from the bishop's perspective that they don't feel qualified most of the time to really handle this on their own. And so they're looking as quickly as possible to kind of put that spiritual bandaid on and say, like, I love you anyway, God loves you. And whatever, whatever it needs to be for not taking the sacrament, like whatever they kind of want to handle that way on the spiritual side. But they're very quick to want to kind of push that case to someone else. But their networks are not great they don't know a lot of therapists. They don't have connections with local resources. And so their first thought almost always is, let's send this kid to the church's website about overcoming pornography. And that's their solution. Like, we'll let the church handle it and they can go through the site on their own. And, and that's good enough. Which talking to professionals in this field, that's not enough. You know, they actually need to talk to somebody about this and get some counsel and talk about their thought processes and their feelings and how those are related. Um, maybe they need some cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectic therapy. And, and the second kind of go-to method for these bishops is let's hook them up with LDS family services. That's the number that I have in my desk that I can give to this kid. Um, beyond that, they just don't really have the resources to handle this and they don't even know where to send these youth to. Was that something that was ever discussed as, as like a tool to offer to bishops? Yeah. And, and we kind of suggested like maybe this overcoming pornography website needs to have some kind of separate section where we say, here are some resources that might be specific to your area. Uh, and I don't believe that those have ever been uh, implemented, partly because the church does not like to link out to external resources that they cannot control. And so as soon as you link someone to like this, even the state of Utah uh, for some kind of counseling guidance or, you know, the suicide prevention hotlines, you lose control of the narrative and the messaging. And, you know, maybe now you're sending a youth to someone who's going to tell them that it's actually okay to masturbate. Um, and that's something that church I don't think we'll ever fully be comfortable doing. 
Um, and there was actually a study that got shelved. Uh, we were going to partner with uh, the Fortify app. And I don't know if the listeners are familiar with that, but it's kind of an anti-pornography, some kind of behavioral therapy approach to overcoming pornography. And it includes a lot of uh, little videos about, you know, here's how to come up with a plan that will keep you safe, or here's how to process some of your thoughts, or here's how to uh, come up with your list of reasons why you want to stop engaging in this behavior and really focusing on that thought process. And it also includes a community forum where, you know, based on who you are and, you know, how deep into pornography you are or the problems that you're experiencing with it, uh, you're now put into this kind of bucket of peers that you can communicate with. And you have coaches that, you know, have live sessions with you. Uh, the church was actually very, very close to signing a contract with Fortify uh, to give certain members, especially in young single adult units, like free access to this program as a trial and to kind of see like, is this a resource that bishops could rely on to say, hey, I don't have the answers, but there's a very competent, professionally managed group that kind of aligns with the church's values. And that ultimately was scrapped just because the church would not have control over the messaging and especially those communications with peers. They're never going to be able to control a forum. They're never going to be able to control any like open chat room discussion like that. Was that what they were worried about? Or was it this, the coaching aspect that would link them up with someone who may or may not be a member of the church and would give them advice outside of what they would get from the, the, the church leadership? Yeah, it was, it was really both. Um, Cause this fortify program has like small groups and the leader of that group that would kind of manage the discussion is it's kind of like in the AA program where you have a sponsor or, you know, you have somebody that's been in it a long time and now they're helping coach others through it. And it's that same kind of model where this person may or may not be a member of the church. This person, you know, the, the program specifically is how to help people stop using pornography, but there are mixed opinions and they're kind of agnostic to the idea of is masturbation problematic or not. And so depending on who you connect with, you still may not be fully aligned with the church's teachings there. So that was a big part of it. So when was this looking into this and, and considering partnering, partnering with them? This was in 2017. And, and so I actually had like conference calls with the, you know, overcoming pornography group at headquarters and also with the CEO of Fortify. And like, we were talking about like, how do we make this work? How do we share data? You know, how do we, you know, use our study to, you know, both help improve the program as well as find out how it might improve our church experience, especially for single adults. Those are late stage questions. Like, how do we share data? How, like the questions that you said, those are things that you would talk about maybe right before implementation. So this was like, we had a master services agreement, like written up and drafted. And like this contract was almost signed. <laughs> and I don't know who it was, but somebody higher than anyone that I worked with directly said, yeah, no, we can't take that risk. And so it was shelved and it was just kind of, you know, one day the, the switch had been turned from on to off and we're not turning that switch back on. Do you see them ever doing an in-house program similar to that? They already have some kind of 12-step 
programs. Yeah. That they do on local stake levels and such. It's very local. It's it's almost always run by church service missionaries or somebody that's called within a stake to to run that. I think the church is much more comfortable knowing that these people are only teaching out of the manuals that we've provided for them. And I don't I don't see them ever really being comfortable linking arms with somebody from the outside. And and not just with sexuality, but I see that across a lot of different topics that there are people out there who specialize in solving the kinds of problems that the church also alludes to on its website. You know, there's a section on the church's website that says, do you need help with addiction recovery or, uh, you know, you have a gambling problem or there's some kind of domestic violence uh, at home. And the church is trying to recreate the wheel on all of those issues because fundamentally, I think they don't trust outside experts uh, to handle it the way that they feel it needs to be handled. Well, even on something that has nothing to do with religion at all. I mean, you mentioned gambling. Like, I, I guess I fail to see a problem with linking to an outside resource on something that is. 100% secular. Yes, it impacts every aspect of somebody's life that has an addiction to gambling, but the problem itself has nothing to do with religion. Yeah. And I, I think the fundamental problem there is that by linking somebody on your website to another resource looks like an endorsement of that organization or their methods or their process. And and that could open up the church maybe to some liability issues where somebody could come back and say, well, the church told me to do this. And it didn't work for me and some bad outcome happened. Um, and so I think in some ways that's evidence of the church being managed mostly by lawyers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's just kind of a lack of trust that our members look to the church so much and so intently and with so much absolute confidence that the church will never lead them astray that any kind of outlink becomes problematic potentially. Speaking of looking to other sources or other resources for information, one of the other subjects that you mentioned, the surveys that you were doing, and this might be back to some of those earlier ones that we mentioned, that we talked about prior to segmentation, you talked about you were gauging the um, knowledge and reception of people such as John DeLynn, Kate Kelly, or Denver Snuffer. I think the problem that we're talking about with these outside apps aligns really closely to their problem with with people such as John DeLynn um, or, you know, a Denver snuffer who would usurp the church's authority as a spiritual leader in one aspect or another, e even though a guy like John DeLynn isn't, isn't proclaiming to be a prophet or, or anything like that, but he is coming as a resource and as a guide for people um, that are struggling with a lot of these same issues. Yeah. And, and even later, even later with Sam Young and people seeing him as a leader of a particular movement, even though he wasn't trying to speak for the church or start his own church or anything like that, it was, it was a pretty simple reform movement within the church. But the church really is uncomfortable with anybody claiming that uh, they know better than the leaders or that they're ahead of the leaders. For these surveys that you were doing uh, around these individuals or other individuals, um, what was the church interested in finding out about them? Um, I, I think it was in a lot of ways, damage control. The, the church knows that these people are out there. 
um, and no matter how often they deny that there is a strengthening the church members committee, they have people at church headquarters that are keeping tabs on individuals and groups within or adjacent to the church that might be leading people out of it or uh, challenging the church's claims in some way. And if, if the uh, strengthening church members are listening, uh, the committee are listening right now, hey, feel free to reach out anytime. We love you guys. You, you have our contact info. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what sorts of questions were you asking about John DeLynn or Kate Kelly, for example? Yeah, so those are those are really the two biggest names that were popping up around 2013, 2014. Uh, when we did these surveys and and we included those names on one of those semi-annual member panels. Um, And I think at the time, the main idea of this research was we know that these people, John DeLynn, Kate Kelly, and some of the ordained women leadership and, you know, even names like Lindsay Hanson Park were starting to pop up. And even though at the time, I don't believe she had left the church. Right, right. No. and, And most of these people, were active members of the church at the time, right up until the moment they were excommunicated um, in some cases. And I think the church knew these people have a strong influence among people who are on the fringes or who are outside of the church or who are, you know, wavering or maybe less faithful. Um, We know that there's an impact there, but how deep into the church's core audience are they reaching? You know, is this something that's actually getting to be a household name in the wards across the U.S.? So they weren't interested so much in those members that would be like spiritually independent. They were more focused on the core membership of the what was it, social and practical that you had talked about. Yeah. So are these people and their messages, are they reaching like the Sunday school presidencies? You know, do we need to start being worried about? these people that are maybe holding these leadership positions within a ward, are they at risk of being maybe tainted by those ideas, the, the radical ideas of giving the priesthood to women? And, and that was an issue of personal interest to me also at the time, uh, because I had had siblings and cousins and friends leave the church in recent years and and they were actively involved in these discussions you know like i can't personally stay in the church and feel good about it but i want to help make it better for others and so they were joining these kind of uh, mormon feminist groups and some of the ordained women stuff and uh, i had relatives that came in from out of town to go and and march at temple square uh, with Kate Kelly at right before priesthood session of general conference. And uh, so this was like a really interesting topic just for me personally, because I knew like these are good people and these are people who value equality. And these are people who value loving your neighbor. And like, these are people I grew up with in the church and, and we have similar values and now they're finding themselves immediately on the outside of the church and not welcome and vilified. And the way that other regular members were talking about these outsiders is like, man, they hate the church so much. And like, no, actually (laughs) they don't, they they want to help it. But yeah, I think the consensus from those surveys really was that like, you know, some, some regular members of the church had heard those names. They were familiar with who John Dolan was. They're familiar with Kate Kelly 
uh, but they really did not agree with the movement. Or they might say, like, you know, I think the cause they're fighting for is just, but the way they're doing it is outside of God's way, and it's contentious, and any contention or disagreement is of the devil, and... You know, so kind of trying to fit their mind around like, okay, maybe I agree with them a little bit, but not the way they're doing it. And it's the tone police kind of thing that comes up a lot in politics anyway. And So did you get an idea for what percentage of the membership knew of John DeLynn or other outspoken critics? Oh, man, it's been so long. I don't think I could even guess a percentage on that one. <laughs> But that was something that you guys did have. You were aware of what percentage of the membership knew of them. Yeah. And these surveys, again, were to the most active of active members. These are the people that were attending at least three Sundays out of the month, had Temple Recommends. Um, and so if any percentage of that group was aware of John DeLynn or Kate Kelly, you know, that's evidence that, yes, these messages are getting to the general populace. Okay, so with the survey that we did asking specifically by name about Kate Kelly and women's issues in the church and her excommunication, uh, we did get a little bit of press coverage. So Peggy Fletcher Stack from the Salt Lake Tribune picked up on that. And she was always kind of the person that the church would warn us about, like, hey, be careful about sharing confidential stuff because Peggy Fletcher Stack is always listening. So it's kind of interesting that she... Uh, did pick up on this. And and I think she has a lot of informants that are watching out for stuff like this and happy to feed her these news items. So she published that in the Salt Lake Tribune. Yep. So there's an article in August of 2014 uh, where uh, she had then gone back and said, okay, we know there's the survey. And she interviewed a couple of uh, different LDS feminist leaders in that movement, and especially with the ordained women. And, and it was interesting too, because they... Uh, had screenshotted and shared some of the actual specific survey questions. Oh, fascinating. So in the survey, we had asked about, you know, what do you understand the church's definition of apostasy to mean? Because these excommunications that happened with both Kate Kelly and John DeLynn were on the grounds of apostasy. And so there were a couple of different news articles about what does apostasy actually mean? What constitutes apostasy? But then also kind of some follow-up questions about how concerned are you you know, these active believing members that are attending three or four weeks out of the month. How concerned are you about the roles and responsibilities and treatment of women in the church? You know, what are you seeing about this? What is your source of information when it comes to talking about the ordination of women to the priesthood? And then also asking kind of how well do general authorities understand the concerns of people who are concerned about women's rights or gender equality or uh, various other topics like that. So we'll pull up those uh, links to those articles and we'll put those in the show notes. Your comment brings up a question and perhaps you might have a window into this better than than I do. During your time there, there seemed to be a slowing down on excommunications, at least of like high profile people. Was that something that was discussed in the halls of, the, of church headquarters? Not specifically. So all of the church disciplinary action takes place at a local level. And I believe that the church's official stance is that those church discipline sessions uh, are strictly local. But anecdotally, it seems that there are times when church leadership might be putting pressure on stake presidents 
to look into certain people or consider having a conversation with this person that we've had our eye on. So there's no solid evidence for that, but it seems like it would be too much of a coincidence sometimes when these bigger movements are popping up and then suddenly all of the leadership is excommunicated within a relatively short amount of time. If memory is serving correctly, Kate Kelly and John DeLynn were both notified of their pending excommunication within the same month, if I'm not mistaken. I think within a couple of weeks. Yeah, it was very quick. And and then you see the same kind of thing, you know, years later, uh, the Sam Young movement to protect children and uh, talking about having children in bishops interviews where they're asking sexually explicit questions and uh, even things with uh, Natasha Helfer and her excommunication. Some of those things do tend to become public at some point, whether or not the person involved wants it to. Um, And sometimes it is their choice to come forward with it. And sometimes they really feel like they don't have a choice, but to come forward with it because of their position in the community. And, And the church really doesn't like it when people start talking about it openly. Uh, I I think they get very nervous that people are going to see these disciplinary councils as a very archaic or heavy-handed approach or that it's uh, punishment or punitive in some way and they don't like the conversation going in that direction. One of the things that you mentioned on the notes that you sent me was kind of striking. You talked about a modification to the app or perhaps a new app on the devices of the members of the church? Oh, yes. Um, so that was a, a pilot study that fortunately never launched as well. So this is you know kind of like the Fortify thing where at the last minute, somebody pulled the plug on it. Um, in, in this case, I'm very glad that that happened. So this was an effort to kind of reduce the amount of work that ward clerks have to do to be able to prepare the quarterly report and all of the attendance data that gets sent back to church headquarters every three months. And also a way to kind of keep track of uh, potentially where we might need new buildings or are we seeing an increase in attendance in certain places and kind of help to strategically plan ward and stake divisions or whatever. So the church wanted to explore uh, potentially using like the gospel library app or the member tools app to uh, let the church know through that data when somebody entered a church building. And so there was kind of this talk of like, what if we put little sensors out in the foyers and, you know, as soon as you cross into the chapel, then it pings and there's data upload and the church now knows that you're at church. Like a lot of businesses have those little RFID scanners at the entrance and then suddenly all your Google ads talk about, hey, have you thought about this product? Because you're standing in the store and your phone knows. Yeah. And so they were they were talking about doing something like that, where then, you know, bishops and everyone else could see which members have been here and, you know, a lot more accuracy in terms of the counts. and. So they were considering making this information, well, I guess it, on, an, on one hand, it already is available to the bishops, but they were going to digitize it and automate it and give it to the leadership. Yeah. And, and you know, then if they wanted to print out a report or something that could all be automated through the uh, leader and clerk tools that they have in the office there. And, and the church kind of already does this in a way with like some of the visitor centers at different temples or um, with the new temple square redesign there, you know, I don't know what the final decision was, but I was involved in some of the early stages and there was talk about like, okay, as we're doing this research on 
you know, what to update in terms of the layout and the flow of traffic through Temple Square. You know, we need to know where the choke points are for security reasons. Like if something happens, you know, this is going to be where people get clogged up. And, uh, and we had talked about doing some kind of like foot traffic sensors to, you know, where are people when they come to Temple Square? Uh, you know, they're coming in more through the north entrance or the east entrance, whatever. Um, and then, you know, where are they spending their time or what order are they seeing the exhibits in? And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uses for that kind of technology. And, and someone had suggested, let's put this in the chapels. Um, and it was somebody in our research division who said, absolutely, this is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Members are not going to like this. And you especially can't do it if you don't tell them that you're doing it. You know, you can't just install this and then make the updates to the app and expect them to read the fine print when it's time to update. This is going to be a train wreck. It's going to be all over the internet. And uh, and so there was kind of a quick impromptu survey out to a few members that said like, hey, here's an idea. How would you feel about this? And, you know, just came back overwhelmingly like, please do not ever do that. (laughs) So... Uh, that was killed pretty early. What time frame was this explored? Oh, uh, this would have been maybe 2015-ish, I want to say. But yeah. And that that's another one that probably would have started out just in a few specific stakes and then gradually rolled out. And I, I'm guessing it would have been done without a lot of fanfare. One, one bad idea successfully averted by researchers. Well, there needs to be more people, I think, in these meetings saying, uh, let's not do that. <laughs> Well, if we look at the whole social context of what this person is dealing with in their life, what they don't need is this. Let's jump back to something we talked about a little bit. You have a little bit more to say on the subject of uh, missionaries and mission presidents specifically. One of the things that we talked about behind the scenes was the title for the mission president's wife. I was unaware of any of this discussion happening in the background. Let's, let's find out about it. What, so what exactly was going on? Yeah, so this one actually starts uh, a few years ago, right when I started at church headquarters in 2013. They had just changed the missionary age uh, for both elders and sisters. The change for sisters was much more significant, uh, going down from 21 to 19, where for elders it had only changed by one year. And so this kind of precipitated a whole lot of questions about now we have more sisters in the field. What do we do with them? You know, and for most of the listeners who have been on a mission less recently than 10 years ago, um, you know, you, you imagine a very male dominated culture and you have your assistants to the president who are always male. The zone leaders are always male. The district leaders are always male. And, and that was the structure. And sisters just kind of fit into whatever district. Um, and, and so this kind of created a need for more sister missionary leadership positions in the first place. And so they invented the sister training leaders, uh, who were, you know, kind of at a zone level responsible for all of the sisters in the zone. And the church was very careful not to make them equal to a zone leader. (laughs) You know, they're, they're part of the mission leadership, but they're not the leader. (laughs) And, and so there, there was a little bit of research that went into that and like, do sisters feel like they're being treated fairly or equally or, you know, are they getting opportunities for the leadership that will help them to develop as missionaries the same way that elders do? And, uh, a lot of questions there. Um, kind of reminded me of my own mission serving in the U.S., but in a Spanish-speaking role. And, you know, there's only 12 of us in the whole mission. 
<laughs> that get rotated through the same zones and we swap companions every once in a while. And, and you know, is there an option for that Spanish speaking missionary to ever become a district leader? Maybe zone leader? Probably not. Assistant? Definitely not. <laughs> because your value is knowing the language and being in the field. So in some ways that kind of mirrored the sister missionary experience where, you know, there, there may not have been an option to go upward in terms of leadership and influence in the mission. So while all that's happening, uh, the role of the mission president's wife also started to change a little bit. She was primarily responsible, almost like a mission president for the sister missionaries. And so there were discussions about, um, can she participate in interviews you know is the mission president the right person to interview all of the missionaries or are there some that should be sent to the mission president's wife um and this the mission president's wife is kind of like the head sister training leader uh, for the whole mission and so what does that mean for her role and her authority and her position so were there any changes made to the role of mission president's wives in in this time or is it largely the same as it was when you and i served uh, in a lot of ways, I think it got opened up a little bit more where the mission president's wife was able to do uh, more of the training, more of the, especially training of sister missionaries. So whenever there's a new sister missionary coming into the mission, you know, she, she becomes part of the president's wife's flock in a way. But the, the interesting thing is that a lot of missionaries started asking, like, what do we call her? Like, is she just the mission president's wife? Because she seems now more than just his wife. Like, she's a leader in her own right. And and the church was very careful and conservative with that question. Um, and so this ended up kind of going through the correlation evaluation group. And is it doctrinally accurate to call her a president or co-president or vice president? Or like, what can you say about her? Uh, knowing that the official priesthood keys belong to only her husband and whatever authority she's acting on is delegated. Well, and the president has already got counselors. She's not going to be a counselor because he's already got two. She's not a counselor and, you know, she's kind of his equal because she is his companion. But does the mission president's companion carry the same kind of leadership overtones? Not really. Uh, is she the junior companion? No, not really. <laughs> That's insulting. And I'm trying to remember exactly how this works now, but I think the sort of compromise they came to was that when you refer to them as a couple, you can call them the mission presidents, but really it's only the man who is the mission president, you know, kind of giving her a leadership title, but really making it clear and solidifying that she doesn't have priesthood authority separate from her husband's that he has delegated. Were there any other titles thrown around that they thought about using? Yeah. So they had talked about like co-president. Uh, they had talked about matron, like you have a temple president and the matron. And that feels really old fashioned and nobody really likes that. <laughs> <laughs> and so that one was kind of, uh, dismissed um just because it sounds a little weird and what is a matron and what are her responsibilities and yeah and i don't know maybe maybe someday they'll change the name of the temple president's wife to make it a little bit more like a kind of a co-president or together they are the presidents of the temple in effect no real change happened there in effect they announced a change but mostly nothing changed 
So I just want to make sure I was understanding. You can call them together the presidents of the mission. This is not directly related to what we were discussing, but it is um, on one hand kind of related to missionary work. The pamphlet Bridging the Gaps was something that we discussed behind the scenes. Um, the idea of bridging, uh, creating a bridge between Mormonism and uh, Muslims around the world. What did you do specifically with this? The surveys that went um, into developing this pamphlet and then implementation of it? Yeah, so this one was kind of a multi-pronged project where f- uh, the church really wanted to have some kind of reading material or handout that they could share with local aid organizations in Muslim-majority countries. Because they're not allowed to proselytize in many of these countries. Right, right. So uh, there are some very large and powerful um Muslim-led humanitarian organizations that do a lot of work around the world. And and these typically are in the same places where the LDS church tries to get involved with humanitarian work. In, you know, so when there's a major earthquake uh, in Indonesia, you know, that's a, that's a huge Muslim population. The church also has missionaries there and, you know, there's opportunity there to collaborate and hopefully strengthen those relationships. Uh, so that we can work functionally better together or be invited to the table when they're making decisions and things like that. Um, so the, the goal was to come up with some kind of handout that highlights some of the similarities between the LDS faith and Islam. Um, and at first glance, that might sound pretty easy, but there is so much diversity within Islam. Uh, the region of the world makes a huge difference. You know, the specific theological kind of distinctions between Sunni and Shia and some other groups that, you know, are are smaller, but have an equally rich history, uh, can all complicate what do Muslims believe. In my mind, when when we're talking about comparing these two things, the way that I'm understanding this is, is the LDS faith is like a subcategory of the broader Christianity of this big umbrella that is a Christianity and the, the LDS faith is just a small piece of that. But Muslim and the Muslim faith is one of those broad categories. It's, that's enormous. That's a huge umbrella. It's a huge umbrella with just as many different distinct sets of beliefs within it as you would have under Christianity. So even the name, you know, bridging the gap between Mormons and Muslims, it just kind of feels like, like a gargantuan effort to relate something that's very specific to something that's very broad. But there is kind of a tradition of comparing Mormons to Muslims. Mm-hmm. Even going back to like 1840s, there were news articles saying like, hey, we got these weirdos next door in Missouri or Illinois or wherever. Um, they're so different from the rest of Christianity, but also look like look how close they are to Islam. Like they say they have new prophets and new scripture after the Bible and you know, some of those comparisons make a lot of sense, instinctively, at least for the way that Americans think of Christianity and Islam. Um, so the idea was kind of like, hey, let's show you who we are, you know, as as we're working together. Like, we also believe in prophets, and we also believe in scripture, and we care about our families. And like, these are pretty general statements that could apply to any any group on earth, almost. <laughs> 
but um, you know, you have dietary restrictions. You don't eat pork. Uh, we don't drink coffee. Like, let's talk about this. And you know, it's faith motivated for both of us, and not exactly the same. But you can see where we're coming from, right? Yeah. And and so definitely, kind of one of the undertones of this whole project is that it's not specifically missionary work, but it's missionary work, right? It's that being a good member of the community and making connections. And when they're ready, they'll ask sort of a missionary work. What surveys were you doing around this subject or what information were you gathering to develop these programs? The first thing that we did was to connect with scholars at BYU that were in like the Middle East and Arabic program. And the idea there was, what can we say, like, to get this started? Like, we need to put together even a rough draft of what might go into this. What can we say that would not be offensive to the people that we're trying to connect to? Because if we even make a prototype of this booklet and start sharing it for feedback and it's offensive on day one, they're never going to talk to us again. It's, you know, we've burned a bridge that we were trying to build. And so just kind of going to those people who have maybe lived in Jordan or people who have traveled extensively in Central Asia or and just saying like, okay, what are the things that are likely to be a real strong connection between us? What are the things that might be more tangential? What are the things that we definitely shouldn't even touch with a 30 foot pole because it's so polarizing or there's not enough unity within Islam to cover? Here's what Muslims believe about this topic. I think theoretically, we could have talked about like, hey, Mormonism also has different branches and factions based on a succession crisis after the first prophet's death. (laughs) That's not something the church wants, and it's not something that Muslims want to talk about either. So don't go there. (laughs) Uh, Initially, this was intended to be like only shared between church employees and their kind of humanitarian partners, you know, kind of a one-to-one it's not published officially or it's not available to everyone, but this is something that we can share as we go into a meeting to say, Hey, we want to help you by the way, here's who we are. The, the target audience for this was not the general Muslim population, solely those working in humanitarian efforts around the world. And these, these groups would be associated with various distinct branches of the Muslim faith. And this, this could be anywhere in the world. Um, and so this could be within the U S it could be in the UK, it could be in Jordan or Israel. Uh, those are a little bit more touchy in some ways, uh, kind of intended to be a general, uh, thing that won't upset anyone that doesn't oversimplify anything necessarily, but doesn't need to go into all of the detail in some areas. So for a lot of the other surveys that we've talked about, in my mind, it's pretty easy to to see who has asked you or tasked you with doing this. But something like this doesn't fully align with the missionary effort. I mean, maybe it's the the missionary department that's that's having you do this. But the question I have is, is who's who's asking you to do this? Because I don't think it aligns perfectly with any of the groups within headquarters that I'm aware of. Right. And, and there is a welfare department with a self-reliance services group associated with them. And this is kind of even above that level. Um, and, and because it's global and because it's kind of this higher strategically kind of straddling both welfare and missionary work. So, so this one actually came to us from a group called the Middle East and North Africa Desk. Um, it's basically the equivalent of an area office 
except that there are no missions or stakes or wards within this entire zone. So it's an area with no area. Right. It's like the rest of the world that couldn't be classified in any other way because it's not legal to do so. (laughs) So places where we cannot have an official presence like Saudi Arabia or Chad or Libya. There are multiple desks, if you will, like this for places around the globe where we don't have an official presence. Uh, It's just this one. Everything else fits into an area. So there's like an Eastern Europe area office. And so even if we don't have an official presence in that part of the world, like it's still kind of part of Eastern Europe, they'll they'll include it there. Uh, This one is really focused on North Africa, the Middle East, you know, places like maybe Pakistan that's not officially Middle East or North Africa, but it's culturally related. Yeah, this this came from that group. It's headed by a member of the 70. Um, and it's a very small organization, officially at headquarters. So what does this group do then? So many questions are popping into my head. But if I mean, they don't have an area, they don't have stake presidents or people that they're checking up on. What What do they do? Uh, it's a lot of kind of public relations. It's a lot of legal compliance things. There are areas where we have U.S. service members who are members of the church who are currently living in those areas that might need some kind of support. And so they do a lot of coordination with like military bases and chaplains um, just to ensure like there, there is a priesthood authority in the area, even if you're stationed in Saudi Arabia and there's no local unit to attend. So are they stationed somewhere near that area or is it church headquarters? They just call in. They're, they're in Salt Lake. So it's a Salt Lake calling um, and they just take phone calls at all kinds of crazy hours of the night, you know, doing whatever they need to do there <laughs> or sending emails and having a 12 hour delay every time. Yeah, I think this this group really is pretty unique that way. So almost everywhere else in the world, you know, things mostly happen by the same set of rules. Um, and this group is really kind of outside of that. And they kind of make up their own rules as they go, just depending on changing circumstances on the ground or uh, changes to laws. And and they have to manage a lot of different conflicting laws within this zone. So just kind of one example of how this works. Like if you are a member of the U.S. military and you're stationed in Saudi Arabia, uh, legally and officially, you are a Muslim. Um, you know, anyone who is in Saudi Arabia must be Muslim. And that's, that's our official stance uh, as the church. Um, and so what does that mean? Well, it means that if you're ever questioned about it by police or military or anyone else, you say, yes, I am. I am a Muslim. There's no God, but God, um, and Muhammad is his prophet. And like, you, you know, the line to say, but you still secretly kind of meet uh, informally to take the sacrament with your army buddies, or, you know, there's certain places you can congregate on the military base where if you're outside of that, it's illegal to meet up in groups. Um, and so just kind of managing all of the ins and outs of that situation and how to navigate the complexities there. It's dangerous for members to publicly be open about being Christian. Yeah. Or, or to say, I'm not a Muslim. I am a Christian. I will never be Muslim. Like that's dangerous. And you don't do that. The, the other kind of interesting thing with this group is that there's not a lot of information about it. 
you know, if you're a member and you're searching for it, like you could probably find out who heads up. So if I just Googled the Middle East, North Africa desk. Yeah, you could Google it and you could probably find out like who's in charge of this uh, office at the church. But there's going to be very little information about actually what they're doing or how they're doing it. Or um, it, it's kind of just buried under that kind of legal liability stuff that they don't want this to get too public. You're doing these surveys for this pamphlet, the Bridging the Gaps, and you're reporting directly to the Middle East and North Africa desk for this research. So what were they after? What did they want you to do? Yeah, we only had two contacts there that we were working with. So it was the head of the Middle East North Africa desk and his personal secretary uh, who had been working at that desk for years and years. And it's kind of a subset of the presiding bishopric also. It's kind of like if you go to the presiding bishopric's offices, you know, they're tucked into one little corner of that same area. And so they kind of work closely. and, And that makes sense that it's kind of a more humanitarian based um, thing and it's it's more temporal affairs than spiritual leadership. So they had commissioned this this pamphlet for their purposes, or was it in conjunction with the humanitarian departments or the welfare department? Pardon me. Um, I don't know of any specific coordination that was going on with other departments. Um, our only contact was this desk, and, and so what we did, they wanted us to kind of first make sure that we have the right topics baked into this, you know, provide the framework and we can figure out what specific text to put in there later. But like, what are the key issues? What are the core things that really have to be there? And so we got to that partly through talking to those BYU professors and, you know, kind of being in both worlds a little bit, they can understand the Mormon perspective and the Muslim perspective uh, with different flavors of Islam, depending on where they had their experience. And so that was step one. Step two was to actually go out and talk to members of the Muslim community. Uh, And so we had coordinated, and some of this is available online. So if you go to the churchofjesuschrist.org, you can find, there's an article called New Pamphlet Muslims and Latter-day Saints. So you go to this, and it, it talks about like, there's a special thanks section at the bottom. Like this was produced in coordination and... Uh, with help from these different groups. And so we had talked to people in Michigan. There's a very large Muslim population around the Detroit area. This article came out earlier this year in January 20th, it sounds like. Yeah, this is very recent. Um, And I didn't know that this was ever going to go public. And so this is kind of interesting to me because for the last, you know, five or four years, uh, you know, my understanding was that it was going to be strictly kept within that kind of humanitarian group. But uh, as of October of last year, maybe they announced some things about it. And now the the whole pamphlet is available to anybody. So, yeah, we had, we had talked. Uh, one of my colleagues actually flew out to Detroit and was doing interviews with people at a Muslim community center and talking to their spiritual leaders and uh, some of the people that kind of helped navigate the immigration issues that a lot of Muslims who are new to Detroit might deal with. And they have a whole kind of support network for new arrivals and they have their own kind of uh, network of Muslim owned businesses that kind of support each other. 
So the question I have, and I think you might have just answered that a little bit, is as you're doing research into figuring out, you know, is this pamphlet going to work? You're obviously going to have to be talking to Muslims, but you can't, you know, just jump into Saudi Arabia and ask, start asking people questions. So you're going to those that have recently immigrated to the United States and asking them these questions? Yes, exactly. And so we talked to people in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles and Detroit primarily and, and kind of sharing with them drafts of this booklet as it was iterated because uh, you never get it right the first time. And, and some of the feedback that we got from them was super valuable. Um, so the, the way that it was initially written, uh, we were talking about the prophet Muhammad and Adam and Jesus and Abraham and you know, saying we have a shared heritage here as descendants of Abraham and, you know, as an Abrahamic religion. And some of the feedback from that group was you can't just say the prophet Muhammad, like you have to say, you know, prayers and peace be upon him or something, you know, whatever that phrase is in Arabic. And so we said like, oh, okay. Like we had already disrespected your heritage and culture by omitting that. So thank you. Like That's the kind of mistake we don't want to make in publication. And even just things like, hey, on this page, you've used a picture of a particular mosque, Agia Sophia. You know, it's a very famous and beautiful mosque, but it has some controversial history. It was built by Christians, later turned into a mosque, and then it was decommissioned as a mosque. And it was just a secular museum in the Republic of Turkey, which was not religious. And there's mixed feelings about that mosque. And so probably that's not the image you want to use. Uh, some of those insights that you just can't really get by thinking about it within Salt Lake City and never going outside of that. And, and some of those kinds of things are obvious, like never show an image depiction of the Prophet Muhammad, but you can show his name in beautiful Arabic script. And that's that's much more appropriate and it's you know, going to resonate much better. But then also, you know, talking to Sunni groups and Shia groups in the United States and kind of understanding, you know, where are the places where you both agree that we also agree that, you know, that's kind of that highest level of, okay, you all believe in fasting and so do we. Like that's something that is so general that it's not going to upset anyone or, you know, further divide any part of the Muslim community that you're trying to build. And then the third part of this study kind of beyond the subject matter experts within the church and then the community experts. Uh, one thing that we did was reach out to uh, our church membership records. Uh, we pulled a sample of people who were born in Muslim majority areas. We were, you know, sending out a quick survey to anyone who may have been born in Tajikistan or Azerbaijan or uh, wherever. And, you know, regardless of wherever they live now, kind of getting that feedback of like, hey, we wanted to run some things by you. Uh, can you give us some feedback about this? Uh, so that was a really interesting project. We ended up translating the survey into like 12 languages. Um, and so that was actually the least fun part of my entire career so far was getting the survey to work in Persian and Arabic because uh, they're right to left languages. Um, and so to put this in a survey that's, you know, the software is all developed in the West. It's formatted for left to right. It's all left to right. And, and can you get the translator to write this in a way that's compatible with a comma separated values sheet that you can upload and <laughs> all the special characters and you have to change the text encoding and 
that took months just to get the Farsi translation squared away. So, and so we were we were talking to people who had immigrated from Iran and Iraq and uh, Egypt and uh, a lot of different parts of Africa and parts of Central Asia, former USSR states that were primarily Muslim. You're doing these surveys, you're talking to these different people. How does the church gauge whether or not they can open a new mission in an area that has previously been closed to the church? And the reason I ask is I think this might be related a little bit to what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know the details of who makes that decision or why or when. What I do know is that just a couple of months after we did this big survey, uh, we had targeted a lot of different people in places like Cameroon and Senegal and you know parts of that northwestern Africa that had a heavy uh, Islamic influence. And just starting to see like there are a lot of people in those areas that are converting from Islam to Christianity. Uh, and and you know a big part of the survey was just, hey, tell us about your religious background. Like have you ever been Muslim? Have you ever been any other type of Christian? Um, and, and trying to get a little bit of insight onto like, are people able and allowed to convert in those areas? Um, and so specifically Cameroon, right after the survey went out, that new mission was opened. Um, and I, I don't know if it's still open or if it's part of some larger geographic area, um, but just kind of evaluating, is there openness to talking to other Christian groups? if you're Muslim and is there a stigma against it? Is your family going to react dangerously? Um, and I think all of those kind of safety considerations go into effect there. Um, one other thing, I don't know that this is widely known in the church, but there is a policy about proselyting to Muslims. Uh, so anyone who is Muslim needs mission president approval before the missionaries can actually teach them anything in the United States as well. In the, in the United States, anywhere in the world, actually. So, so if you were knocking on doors in Texas and you came across someone from Lebanon and, uh, and they were uh, Islamic, then you would have to get mission president approval and he would probably actually reach upward to first presidency or uh, the Middle East, North Africa desk to say, is this a safe situation? Because there could be, depending on where they're from and what the culture is, there could be very serious ramifications and maybe somebody in their home country might hire a hit on them for converting outside of Islam. And then maybe the missionaries are also targeted, you know, as infidels that have violated that code of conduct. So I think that policy is still in effect. I haven't heard anything to the contrary, but that was something I never knew before going into this project. Is there anything else that the general membership wouldn't be aware of? Uh, and are you talking about specifically with the Islam thing? More generally, like from your whole time working at the headquarters. I mean, just one little random story here. Uh, there's a cafeteria downstairs in the basement. And there's, there's this terrific guy that works in there. And uh, he's always in the same spot serving up the uh, there's like an American and Mexican grill area where you can either get like a burrito or a hamburger or a hot dog. And he works in there. And every time without fail, every time somebody orders tater tots, 
he just kind of bursts into song, my golden tots. And like, it's just his thing. And it's so wonderful. (laughs) And like, I want everyone to go in, go down to the basement, uh, order some tater tots and just experience that moment for yourselves. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Did you also want to share the caffeine story? Yeah, and I think that one, it's, it's funny because even BYU now has caffeinated beverages on campus. Yeah. But church headquarters still does not. I don't know what the justification is. Maybe they say like they did at BYU and they initially were refusing to change that rule. Maybe there's no demand for it. I could tell you looking out my window at church headquarters that there's demand because there would be a constant line of people coming and going from City Creek. <laughs> you know, leaving empty handed and coming back with a a 52 ounce Mountain Dew from the pharmacy across the street. (laughs) So we used to do these kind of soda pilgrimages once in a while. And we'd round people up just as a, you know, 10, 15 minute break from the work day and and go walk around. And uh, you needed to caffeinate some days more than others. So a couple of friends and you're standing at the elevator on the 20th floor, you got to wait for a while. And you just say something like, come, let us go down. And one of them will say, we will go down. <laughs> uh, just that kind of lighthearted, like we know it's, we know it's a serious thing and, and we all took our covenants seriously. And it, it wasn't, you know, trying to make that ordinance any less sacred for anybody, but it's also that moment where you can kind of realize like, we don't have to take life quite so seriously. A lot of the things that we've talked about, we've covered a variety of subjects, both sensitive and some that are more mundane. Um, I think this has been a fascinating discussion, but I, I love that you ended it on that story because it kind of brings brings to mind some of the conversations we had clear back three weeks ago when we discussed uh, the people that are there and the fact that they're real people. And from what you've said, most of them are incredible and just down to earth and real people. Um, with the exception of some, I mean, I'm not going to make a blanket statement that everybody that works there is great, but for all the good and the bad that comes out of the church, the people that work there are just people. I mean, everybody has their own family. Everybody has their own way of doing the church and even working there until you get to know somebody, you just don't know who they are. Um, and, and my opinions about people definitely changed over the course of my time there you know, people that I had kind of run across in meetings and I thought, man, that guy seems like such a terrible person. Like he's so arrogant or he's, you know, whatever. And then you start talking to him. And once you get kind of past that superficial layer and you start talking about the things that really matter to you and like, what are you trying to build here and why? And like, what's your motivation for putting in this work here? And And you just start to realize like he really is just a good guy and he's doing his best. And, you know, there's a reason that he comes across as arrogant. It's, you know, he's had his own bad experiences in his career and maybe now needs to overcompensate, (laughs) you know, whatever it is, there's a story there and they're mostly just really good people doing the best they can with what they have. And, and, and believers and they're, they're acting in accordance with their faith. Yeah. And I think that is a really noble attribute that they're willing to do something to build something that they believe in that's bigger than themselves. And I I do admire the kind of selflessness of the people that work there. That's, that's a pretty general trait that most people are there 
because they honestly believe they're helping somebody. And, and you can see it, you know, as you're doing work and going out into the field and finding out how people are using the programs that you've helped to design. They're grateful for the work that goes into it. And there's something very valuable there. Well, that's got to be rewarding too, to go and develop the whole thing and then follow the implementation and then, you know, do the research to see how it's being received and how it's actually being used. Yeah. And just to hear like, Hey, this has been actually really helpful for my family here in Panama. Like that means something. And you take that feedback back to headquarters and you say like, Hey team, we're, we're doing it. Like there's something good coming out of this. Um, so even though I don't believe anymore in the truth claims of the church and I, you know, I don't believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet and, you know, some of those kinds of things, most of the time I don't regret the work that I did at the church because most of the time I, I feel like it was helping somebody. Well, I got to follow up now. I mean, you left out as low hanging <laughs> fruit. Is there anything that you do regret from your time there? Some of the work of the projects that you were involved with, are there any that you do regret then? And I think for my own situation, I tried to always be very open and transparent about what I thought and, you know, always being very transparent about here's what I heard from somebody. This is a real person. And so even if you're not going to act on this, like you still have to hear this and, you know, you're going to have to live with that knowledge that now you've heard from this person. Um, I think, I don't know, there, there's only a couple of projects that I kind of feel a little bit weird about. And, and I think I would feel weird about them even if I hadn't worked on them, just knowing that I'm a member of the church that did this. <laughs> yeah, maybe regret isn't the right word then. Maybe just something that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think some of the stuff that came out, uh, there was a project from public affairs where they were dealing with just local Utah election things. Uh, and just trying to make sure like, hey, we have these kind of ballot initiatives that we want to kind of subtly support. And how do we talk about these? And uh, it just feels odd to have been part of something that was right up against politics. You know, even if we didn't cross into that territory, it was so close. And there are people at the church. There are people at the church who are involved in politics and especially in the public affairs and public relations uh, there's a Utah Senate candidate right now as politicians or there's a Utah Senate candidate right now who used to be a spokesperson for the church that I worked with while I was there. And that, that line between the church's public affairs and public relations and actual kind of getting involved always feels a little bit hazy. That's, that's always something that I've, I've wondered about. And, and there's that famous interview of uh, Mitt Romney when he's being directly questioned about this, where does your church influence your decision-making? Yeah. And, and specifically, I mean, I don't, this interviewer may not have been um, aware of the oaths made in the temple, but the oaths that we make, they clearly state that the fealty is first to, to the church and second to anything else. And in my mind, I, I've always wondered how could you be objective about anything and also fulfill that oath? And, and I think there are a lot of members of the church who, you know, go through the temple and they have their endowment and they make the same kind of oath to give everything that you have to the church and spend all of your talents in its behalf. 
And I, I think there are a lot of members that just like, okay, yeah, I did that. Um, and then never really think about it critically afterward. And, and for the people that really focus on like, am I giving everything to the church? That's kind of a slippery slope to fundamentalism or, you know, whatever that, that, that could take you a lot of different directions. And so there's not one single way that people experience those oaths or the covenants that they've made, or those, those are not always interpreted the same way. And because we never talk about them openly, uh, nobody knows exactly what the right way to interpret those is. The church doesn't get involved specifically with uh, specific issues or candidates. Well, not issues, but candidates or parties. And, and the church is very clear when they say we don't get involved in politics. They never say we don't engage in politics at all. We don't support individual candidates or parties or platforms. Uh, what they're very careful not to say is that they do an extensive amount of lobbying and they have people who work for the church who spend a considerable amount of time at the Utah state Capitol, especially during the legislative sessions. And, and this doesn't specifically go against the laws that keep the church tax exempt. Churches are allowed legally to do some lobbying as long as it doesn't constitute um, a significant portion of that organization's doings. So, so if they can prove that we spend more of our time uh, teaching or proselyting or you know doing other kinds of activities, then this lobbying is inconsequential to the overall activities of the church. And so that's kind of legally how they're able to do this. But isn't that just a loophole with a worldwide organization where any given day, they could say we have 60,000 missionaries and we've only got 10,000 people lobbying. Yeah. And I'm not sure what it would take to prove that a religious organization is lobbying too much. I think that becomes a very fuzzy and subjective issue. And I just threw out an, like an extreme number just to you know kind of make a point. Yeah. But, but they are following the IRS guidelines, uh, at least to the point where they could potentially legally defend themselves if they needed to. And I don't know how often people bring those kinds of suits against the church and they're settled or they lose or whatever. But yeah, they, they definitely have um, an outreach arm, you could say, to the Utah legislature, making sure that the people who are voting on the various bills are at least aware of the church's views and the way that the church would like them to vote. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. I want to extend an open invitation. If there's ever anything that comes to your mind, any other subjects that are fascinating to you, happy to bring you on and discuss. Are there any final things, anything that you want to say before we we cut this off? I don't know. Just life is complex. <laughs> yeah. Everybody does it their own way. And I, I'm not where I thought I would be now. Um, I, I guess it just reminds me of a song by Ben Folds where he just says, uh, all the wrong turns, the stumbles, the falls brought me here. And it's kind of just a beautiful realization that, you know, I, I've been in places that no longer fit me. And I'm probably in a place now that will no longer fit me at some point in the future. And that's okay. Um, and I'm, I'm just trying to kind of roll with life and take it as it comes. That's a that's a very centered and Buddhist way to to look at the world. That I I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, Buddhism is definitely part of my worldview uh, in recent years. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's I guess one other thing. 
like we we did look a little bit at where do people go when they leave the church um and you know what is the common trajectory for people as they exit the church and most of the time probably nine times out of ten uh, it's towards some kind of non-specific spirituality people who leave the lds church are typically not joining any other church um even if they remain christian uh, there's there's something about the concept of this is the only true one if this isn't true then nothing is kind of a mindset that when people leave this church they're a little bit turned off by organized religion they're a little bit turned off by anyone claiming to have the truth um, and so most often what we would see is that people are filtering into yoga or buddhism or just a general spirituality or maybe they get into faith healing or you know whatever it is they're just kind of doing their own thing um, so that's not uncommon i think that I, I think a lot of people who have left the church that are listening will probably resonate with that a little bit there's a fair amount that would that would relate as agnostic atheist that i've discussed with and even even if they do identify as agnostic atheists, many of the people that I have spoken with have gone down a similar trajectory where they'll study Buddhism or they'll study, you know, a yogic faith or yeah, or or even just landing in something like secular humanism and seeing like, you know, what I'm feeling right now, I used to describe as feeling the spirit. And and this feels good to me and I like where I'm at and it's almost a spiritual experience through that lens even if it's not specifically a spiritual tradition that you found so that's all just be kind to yourself <laughs> don't judge don't judge your past self too harshly because you didn't know you know you're still learning that's been something that i have struggled with for a while too and it's it's kind of coming to terms and being okay with the decisions that you made in the past because you did the best you could with the knowledge that you came to those situations with and of course, I would make a different decision now if I would, you know, somehow time travel and be back there. But I can't fault a different version of me for not knowing what I know today. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the same thing. Like the past version of yourself is a stranger. So you don't know what they're going through. Treat them with kindness and respect and be gentle. <laughs> well, and then, it, you know, it's not easy to make that next jump and you alluded to it too, but, you know, 10 years from now, I'm going to be a wholly different person than I am today. And, and that person is going to look back at, at me right now saying, wow, why did he make those decisions? Or what was he thinking? And, and it's, it's that same sort of kindness that we need to offer to ourselves, past, present and future. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a pleasure. And uh, I'm sure we'll find something else to chat about down the road. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you having me on. That concludes the three part series discussing church headquarters with Brian Harris. I have to do a special shout out to the guest that I brought on clear a year ago, uh, Kaisa, because she put me into contact with Brian and helped facilitate this whole thing. So a special thanks to you, Kaisa. And again, thank you so much, Brian, for being willing to share your story if you like the, sh the podcast, make sure to rate it, review it, rate it five stars. It would hurt my feelings if you did anything less than that. Uh, leave a review, share it with a friend, spread the word. 
interviews like this one that I have done here are helpful both for believing members and post members of the church. It is an eye-opening glimpse into the way the church actually operates. Wherever you find yourself out there, mowing the lawn, taking care of a sick kid, I hope that you have an excellent day.